This morning we continue our study of Malachi. He's a prophet that we we don't know a whole lot about other than that his name means my messenger. We know that he preached around 450 BC, a day when in Gary Yates' words, the message was clear. Live today in light of a future day, the great and awesome day of the Lord. This was Malachi's message throughout this book, that God's people must live not according to their circumstances and their assumptions, not to be swayed by your circumstances and your assumptions about what you think God is doing or not doing, to not live that way, but rather to live according to the nature and the promises of God, to live and to be moved and to be swayed and to be directed based on who God is, the nature of our God, and who God is to us. What are the promises that he has made to us that we can trust, that we can rely on? This is the way that we should live. This is the way the people in Malachi's day should have lived also, but they weren't. And so God has this message for them through Malachi. And then specifically in today's text, we'll take the second part. In light of the promises and the nature of God, God confronts his people. We will see that God confronts his people regarding their mouths and regarding their marriages. He confronts them regarding their mouths and also their marriages. Last Sunday, we saw and listened to God confront the people regarding their love for God. They began by questioning God's love for them, and he turned the table and said, What about your love for me? Where is your love for me manifested? And now think of it this way today. In what we read, things get much more concrete. Here are more concrete, specific ways that God's people were not loving him as they ought. And it was in regards to their mouths, what they said. And it was in regards to their marriages. Let's pray together before we go any further. Father in heaven, we need help understanding your word, and we need help applying your word And we know that our minds will stay dark and our hearts will stay cold without you. So by your Holy Spirit, give us light and heat, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find today's text on page 753. I mentioned this last Sunday, but again, to remind you, the way that Malachi gets his message out is through documenting these six disputes between God and his people. Last week, we looked at disputes one and two, and now this morning, we're going to look at disputes three and four, and they are found in chapter two, verse 10, through chapter three, Verse 5, and remember that each of these disputes has the same structure. 
introduction, then a question, and then a response. So in each of these disputes, God introduces the issue, and then the people ask a sort of defensive question, and then God responds. So with that in mind, let's begin with the third dispute. It's described in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And this was regarding their marriages. We get insight into their marriages and the trouble that was in their marriages and how it was offensive to God. So the issue is introduced by Malachi this time in verses 10 through 13 of chapter 2, where he asks three questions. Look at these questions with me. Verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So Malachi uses the word we. He includes himself. And he's speaking on behalf of the people. And the we here is Judah, specifically. It is the southern kingdom of Israel who had returned to this city of Jerusalem from exile 100 years before. The temple and the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt John Blanchard writes, but the spiritual and social life of the nation had been reduced to rubble. So some things looked better by this time on the outside, like the outside of the cup was cleaned up, the temple had finally been rebuilt, but spiritually, spiritually the people were not doing well. And so he asks these questions, and let's take each of them. One of the questions is, has not one God created us? And that's a rhetorical question. Malachi knows the answer to this question, and he knows that his readers know the answer to this question. Has not one God created us? And the answer was yes. They knew this. They believed this. One God had created each of them, they all shared the same creator. Same for us. One God has created each of us. The first man, Adam, was created. We read about it in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And every human being since then, Isaiah 43, 7, has been formed and made by God. You have been formed and made by God. Psalm 139, 13. You were knit together by God in your mother's womb. So one God had created each of them. A second question. Have we not all one father? It's another rhetorical question. They shared one Father in heaven. 
Israel, the people to whom he was speaking and writing, that they shared one Father in heaven. The Bible does not teach the universal fatherhood of God. Not everyone is a child of God. To say that everyone is a child of God is wrong and would have horrible implications. Everyone is not a child of God. God is creator of all, and he is father to some. He is creator of all and father to some. And this included, this fatherhood included these people of Israel. Israel was God's firstborn son, according to Exodus 4.22. He talked of them as his firstborn son, his dearly loved child in Hosea 11.1, his sons and daughters, according to Isaiah 43.6. And so the people of Israel would say to him, Isaiah 63.16, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. And now the third question, and this is building. These questions are building to this third question. In other words, since God, Malachi is saying to these people, since God is our creator and since God is our father, third question, why then, why then are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. Why are we faithless to one another? And when we are faithless to one another, we are profaning the covenant of our fathers. So let's make sure we understand what Malachi is saying here. He brings up this word covenant. Since Genesis chapter 15, these people, these children of Abraham, they were in covenant with God. And a covenant, at a very basic level, there's so much more we could say about covenant, but at a very basic level, a covenant is an oath-based relationship. It is a relationship that is bound by oaths, vows, that are made to one another. It is a commitment made before God. And those who were in covenant with God were also, were necessarily not only committed to him, but committed to one another. They were committed to God and had obligations to God in covenant with him, but that also meant that they were in covenant with one another and had obligations to one another. So why, Malachi asks, were they faithless to one another? In other words, their covenant with God, their covenant with God demanded not only faithfulness to God, it demanded faithfulness to one another. 
and this is where they were falling short. How were they falling short? Let's keep reading. How were they faithless to one another? And that's what we find in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Two ways, we'll see. Malachi brings up intermarriage and divorce. The first is that they were faithless through intermarriage. Now, if it's not already clear to you, he does not mean racial. He's talking, we'll see, spiritual, not racial intermarriage. God has no problem with this, but spiritual intermarriage. Well, what is that? Let's look at verse 11. Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. He's going to go on. Here's what we see. Men of Judah were intermarrying with pagan women. So they were marrying women who did not know their god, or love their God. They were marrying women regardless of their devotion to their God. And it was inevitably dragging these men away from God. These did not turn out to be missionary marriages. They turned out to be miserable marriages, which is far more typical. I know there's probably some here today who have testimonies and maybe your marriage began and one of you was a believer and the other was not a believer and today you are both believers. And that's a wonderful story and that is a wonderful testimony. But I hope you would agree that it is not a good example of how to go about this. This is what was happening in Malachi's day and it was not going well. This is exactly what Christians, so here we are now as Christians, not Israel, but Christians, we are warned against this very same thing by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And the way he worded it was, do not, men or women, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not intimately attach your lives to unbelievers. Do not be yoked to unbelievers. This will likely not go well for you. It is disobedient to God. And as we're going to see here, it portrayed and pictured something wrong. So verse 12, in case we don't think this is as big a deal as it is, verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord 
of hosts. So he speaks in extremely strong terms. What is the condition of your love and your devotion to God if you're willing to marry someone who does not love God? What does that tell you about how important God is to you? It tells you he's not very important to you. So God confronts this. That's the first way, through these intermarriages, that they acted faithlessly toward one another. Now, the second way, it's introduced in verse 13. And this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. God's upset with you. He's not accepting your offerings. And then they ask their defensive question. Here's that structure. Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? What is the problem? Why does he not accept our offerings? And then here's God's response where he makes clear their second act of faithlessness. And we see that they were faithless through divorce. Verse 14b, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now, we're going to take these verses and slow down just a bit. These are important verses. These are powerful verses. They certainly apply to us today. Because... The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now think about it, those of you who are married. Hopefully your wedding ceremony reflected this. And God was witness between you and your wife. Or witness between you and your husband. In other words, you made oaths, you made vows to one another. And it was before God. Not just before physical witnesses, but before a spiritual witness, the most important witness, God himself. So these oaths were made before God, and now to whom, these wives of these husbands, to whom you have been faithless, you have been faithless to her, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Husbands, at a fundamental level, who is your wife to you? She is your companion and she is your wife by covenant. Which is very powerful and very good and very sweet. She is your life companion. The best thing you have in this life. Your companion at your side. And before God, she is not only your companion. Like, well, she used to be my companion, but now not so much, and so... I'm not sure I want to keep doing this, which is the way our culture thinks. No, she is also your wife by covenant. 
That means if you have an ESV study Bible, they put this so succinctly and well. Marriage is not just a contract, a two-way relationship between husband and wife, but a covenant. It is a three-way relationship in which the couple is accountable to God. Do we think about marriage that way? It is a covenant in which the couple is accountable to God. Malachi goes on and describes this, verse 15. Did he, that is God, not make them one? Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Why did he make them one? Godly offspring. Godly offspring God was after. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Husbands, she is your companion and your wife by covenant and God has made you one. And one of the reasons God has united you and made you one in this powerful way is that you would love and raise children to know and love him. Verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife. So here's what was going on and here is the opposite. But divorces her. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. A tough phrase to interpret. Only shows up here in the entire Bible. It seems to be a figure of speech referring to the defiling of one's character with violent wrongdoing. Very strong says the Lord of hosts. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, on extremely rare occasions, as clarified in the New Testament, divorce is permissible, but... Those exceptions are not in view here. These 450 B.C. divorce cases were all wrong. And God calls them out. It sounds, as best we can tell, very similar to what we have in our day, and that is no-fault divorce. No real obligation. And for basically any reason, no fault of anyone, divorce is seen as a good and permissible thing. This is not God's view. Proverbs 2.17, about the adulteress. If you forsake the companion of your youth, you forget the covenant of your God. 
The nature of marriage, no matter what culture says, has not changed since God has invented it. It has not evolved. And so we find Jesus echoing this same truth in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, actually quoting what we just read. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, his mo and behold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're quoting Genesis 2, 24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, that's Malachi 2, 15. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Ian Duggett writes this. Confining marriage to the limits of the community of faith, that was the first issue of intermarriage, and remaining faithful within marriage are crucial in the Bible because marriage is the principal metaphor for the relationship of Christ and his church. More on that later in our conclusion. But this is one powerful reason why Divorce is to be taken so serious because marriage of a husband and a wife is to be a picture, a portrayal of Christ's relationship to his church. And so marriages will either lie about who Jesus is in relation to his church or they will tell the truth about it. And so no wonder God takes this serious. So that's dispute number three. These men were, if you will, marrying the wrong women, and they were leaving the right ones. Let's look at dispute number four. And now this is regarding their mouths. First, their marriages were displeasing to God, and now here we see their mouths. And the issue is introduced in verse 17a. You have wearied the Lord with your words. The biblical position on your words is that there should be less of them. We'd all be pretty wise to think about that. Even those of us who are more quiet, we have areas and places where we tend to talk too much. And I want to show you this, but the biblical position on your words is that there should be less of them. And I can't read you all the texts, but it'd be a good study for us to do. But I'll give you a sampling. And remember, these Jews were wearying God with their words. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For, why not? I love this text. Why? why? Why not be quick with your mouth, rash with your mouth? Why guard even what your, what your heart says, right, before the words are even coming out of your mouth? Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. 
is the answer. Because God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Because God is God and you are you. This is not like an equal playing field. This God is not our peer. We're not working with equal knowledge and equal intelligence here. It's not even close. So remember this. That God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore... Solomon writes, let your words be few. So Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And Psalm 62, 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And let's say this. This is in Proverbs 17, 28. Let's say you're not really intelligent. You're not all that intelligent. You're not all that wise. There's a way to at least appear intelligent and appear wise. And I assume you at least want to look smart and you want to look wise. You want to sound wise. Proverbs 7, 20, 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Look, he's just sitting over there. He's not saying, I could tell, he's just chewing on this, he's just thinking about it, and you're thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner, but everybody thinks you're really wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Now, it's just a tip. And so Job, you remember Job? He was a, a man of God, so godly. It seems to be that he was the godliest man on earth. And yet he lost control of his mouth before God. And so at the end of his ordeal with God, he says this in Job 44, the godliest man on earth. Behold, I am of small account. Remember, God is in heaven and I am on the earth. I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I'm running with these thoughts. I'm running with these words. I'm running with what I think are truths. They might be lies. I'm running. And I've just got to put my hand over my mouth. And I've got to stop myself. We all have to do this. Then there's the, the defensive question. But you say, how have we wearied him? We haven't done that. We get defensive. What are you talking about? We're not doing that. How have we wearied you with our words? So let's hear how, the end of verse 17, by saying... Here were the words that really offended God. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Now, I want you to think about what they're saying here. This is pretty bad. 
Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So they were critical of God's ways. Here they are getting caught up in their circumstances again. It appeared to them that wicked people were just getting away with evil while they were left to gruel it out. And they weren't the first ones or the last ones to feel this way. I've felt this way. I bet some of you have felt this way. Why is this person who doesn't love you, who doesn't trust you, why are things going well for them, and why are things difficult for me, and I love you? Where are you, God? Are you just? Are you fair? Jeremiah asked about this. Chapter 12, verse 1. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? He asked. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? It's so hard for the people of God to understand this. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? God, why are you letting that happen? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? The psalmist in chapter 73, verse 3, admits, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So before, remember, they were questioning the love of God, and now they're questioning the justice of God. These two sides of that same coin. God, where is your love for us? They were asking before, and now, God, where is your justice for them? Here's what God was going to do. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So their question, literally, in verse 17, where is the God of justice? And now the first part of God's answer here is, he's coming. That's what he's saying in chapter 3, verse 1. Where is the God of justice? He is coming. And he is the Lord whom you seek. They may not know that's what they're seeking, but when they cry out for justice, when they cry out for judgment, they are crying out for the Lord to come. And the Lord to come, we know, is Jesus. So first, my messenger, God says, was going to come, which, by the way, 400 years later would be John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, 14 identifies John the Baptist as this messenger who would come first before the Lord to prepare the way. And then after the messenger, the Lord whom they seek, that is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, he would come. And now when he comes, what will happen in regard to this undone justice in their view? Two things. Let's read in the following verses. Two things. First, he will come to purify sinners. And that's in verses 2 through 4. First, the Lord would come 
to purify sinners. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit at a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. That is God's people. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former days. So the first thing God says when they cry out for judgment, what are you going to do about this wickedness? What are you going to do about this sin? And the first thing God says is, well, when the Lord Jesus comes, he's going to deal with your sin and your wickedness. And those who are his people, he is going to purify you. He's going to cleanse you. He's going to change you. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to make you more holy. The ESV Study Bible again says, The images used for this purifying work, the refiner's fire and fuller's soap, stress both its thoroughness and its severity. The heat of the refiner's fire was intense in order to separate the dross from the molten pure metal. Similarly, the fuller washed clothes using strong lye soap after which the clothes would be placed on rocks and beaten with sticks. Maybe you felt like you've been cleansed with some harsh cleanser before and laid out on rocks and beaten. God's discipline for us is often severe and painful. But we'll come back again in our conclusion and see that it is good and it is for our good and actually for our joy. So first, God would come, the Lord Jesus would come and purify sinners. And then also, in verse 5, he would come to judge sinners. So some are going to be purified and some are going to be judged. Now that painful purification doesn't sound so bad, does it? Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In summary, the Lord would come to purify and to judge. Gary Yates, in his book, The Book of the Twelve, writes this. To those who fear the Lord, that day will be a day when the Lord refines and purifies his elect in accordance with his covenant. But to those who do not fear the Lord, it is a dreadful day a day when the wicked will not stand. God is not indifferent to sin, which was their accusation. God is not indifferent to sin. He deals with it wherever he finds it. It's a matter of how. So there we have the third and fourth disputes. In regards to their marriages, they must be faithful to one another. In regards to their mouths, 
they must no longer weary God with their assuming presumptuous complaints. Israel was living according to their circumstances and their assumptions, not the nature and promises of God. Their mouths were not professing trust in the promises of God, and their marriages were not portraying the covenantal nature of God. So in conclusion, let's think about this together, how we might apply this. Are you not a Christian this morning? Are you here, but you're not a Christian? Pay really close attention, I would say, to chapter 3, verse 5. Read it again. Maybe even personalize it. It describes the judgment that is coming for sinners, that is, all sinners who do not confess their sin to God, repent, and put their faith in Jesus Christ. For them, for you, if you are not a Christian and you do not turn to Christ, verse 5 of chapter 3 would sound like this. Then God says, I will draw near to you. You could put your name there if you're not a Christian. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. On that day, and you don't know when that day is going to come, I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against you. A swift witness against you who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. There is only one way, friends, to avoid this just punishment. There is only one way, and that way is Jesus. The truth is found in scriptures like John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, so if you today would believe in him, whoever believes in him, what will happen? Should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not come and say, game over, you're all going to hell. The Son did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So whoever believes in Him, including those of you who are not Christians here today, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But if you would persist in your unbelief today and then die tomorrow, or for the rest of your life, let's say 30, 40, 50 years, and then die. If you would persist in your unbelief, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Of all your sins, and they're all so bad, just like mine, the greatest is that you would not love and trust Jesus. Are you a Christian this morning? And I hope this is all of you. 
You know, when I speak to those who are not Christians, I'm always hoping that I'm speaking to nobody. For those of you who are Christians, in light of this text, it seems wise for us, doesn't it, to take a look at our marriages and our mouths? To take a look? What about those of you who are unmarried? You're nine years old or something. You don't have a spouse yet. That's a good thing. Or you're a teenager, or you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever. You're not married. Consider what God says about intermarriage. Of all the qualities that you look for, of all the qualities you look for in someone to date, whatever word you want to use, to date or to court or to ultimately marry, what is most important to you? What is the most important thing to you? Out of all the things that I'm sure are important and, and a lot of really good things would make that list, but now or when you're ready, what are the most important things you look for? Is he, is she a Christian? And that doesn't mean they say, I'm a Christian. Wait, what do I need to be? What do I need to be for this to work out? A Christian? Yes, I am one of those. What is that? Yes, I'm that. That doesn't work that way. It can't just be, I'm a Christian. It can't just be, I go to this church or that church. You got to do your best to really discern this. Is this professing Christian really a Christian? Does he, does she show evident love for God? How do they use their mouth? How do they spend their time? How do they spend their money? Is love for God, is it evident? Does he or she exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? If they are a Christian, then you're going to see the fruit of the Spirit. Not perfectly. We don't even need to go into all that. Not perfectly. That's not what we're saying. But if the Spirit is in you, the Spirit bears fruit. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does he or she show clear regard and care for other people? Are they selfless? A Christian is not fundamentally selfish. They may be selfish at times and struggle with selfishness. I certainly do, but they are selfless. There is a real love for others. Is he or she faithful and consistent in their Christian life? Do they pray? Do they read the Bible? Do they attend worship? Do they serve? Do they study God's word? are just a few of the questions that would be good to ask. And if not, let's not be guilty of the same sins that those in Malachi's day were guilty of. For those of you who are married, consider what God says about divorce here. Your marriage is, in part, intended to display to the watching world the covenant 
between God and his people? Does it? Does your marriage display to the watching world, whether it's your kids or your neighbors or your church or your friends, whoever, does it display a picture to the world around of God's covenant with his people? Are there, are there qualities and characteristics that are otherworldly? Is there love and devotion and commitment that points to heaven? You know, Ephesians 5 is where we really get to the heart of this. Paul drives this home. I won't read all the verses, but you hear he speaks to wives in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And the, the husbands, verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then at the end in verse 32, Paul wraps it all up and he says, This mystery, this mysterious marriage is profound. And I am saying that it, that is Christian marriage, refers to, points to, displays Christ and the church. So we should examine our marriages in light of that. As believers, we want our marriages to tell the truth about the relationship between Jesus and his church. And then finally, what about the complaints in our mouths? We all have them. Some of us might be more restrained in what we let come out, but we all have them. We all from time to time question God. We all from time to time have complaints. We question God's providence. We complain to him or we complain to others based on our assumptions of what he is doing. So God's message for us through Malachi is to take heart. The Lord will come again to judge the world. We complain about the injustice we see or the wrongdoing that we see. That same psalmist back in chapter 73 who struggled so much with how the wicked were prospering and what appeared to be a lack of justice in the world and people doing bad things and, and getting away with them, he struggled and then he stopped struggling, do you remember, by the end of the chapter, and he stopped struggling. He said, I struggled and complained until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The awful end. Where those wicked sins would be paid for in full. And his complaints, they left. And take heart. Not only is the Lord coming again to judge the world, but the Lord has come. Christian. The Lord has come. He has saved you, Christian. He has saved you, and he is purifying you 
through painful and difficult trials. He has saved you, and he is purifying you. These trials that we can complain about, understand they are for your good, and he is purifying you through them. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, isn't that what this says in verses 7 through 11? It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and you're not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Should we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later. Be patient. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so, in our marriages and with our mouths, let us not live according to our circumstances and our assumptions, but let us with our mouths remember the great promises of God and in our marriages, may they reflect the nature of of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for inspiring Malachi to say what he said and to write what he wrote. And to think that we're here almost 2,500 years later and we still struggle in the same ways. God, we are so thankful that you have sent the Lord Jesus. And we're so thankful, God, that you are sending the Lord Jesus again. That you have sent him so that we may be saved and you will send him again so that we may be rescued from this life and brought into life eternal with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.